Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you? I'm really good. How are you going? Very good, thank you. Nice. If I may, I'd mm-hmm. just like to start off by talking about Stream Time. Do your thing. Who is our major supporter of ADR and everything we do. Mm-hmm. I start the day today with a catch up with Andy at the Sydney office. Oh, nice. And he was talking me through a bunch of new features they've got in the works. Actually, I'm not sure. I've written this in, and then I'm like, I'm actually not sure what I can talk about. But there's some right. really cool stuff coming out. Um, it, it's just really nice that they are really taking on a lot of companies doing it, and I think it's a very smart thing to do, taking on what the users want, yeah, and, and really kind of like making that part of their business cycle. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to check them out, streamtime.net, get all the information, a free account to try out the software. Cool. I love that you come to Sydney to see other people and I'm kind of this like secondary yeah. secondary thought. I'll see if I can fit you in yeah. then. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who, yeah, who do we have on this episode? On this episode, we have Chi Ryan, Experience Strategy Director at PwC Digital. Chi's got a wealth of experience in user experience, which is a term she hates, by the way. She'd much rather talk about HCD, Human Centered Design, because as she puts it, we're humans, not users. Does she, does she hate... The experience in user experience, or is it just user experience in general? No, I think it's just the user. I think right. I think because you know, Aussies growing up at a certain age, mm. like the user is like you know, oh, is a user like? It's, oh right, it's you it's, think it has like this kind of cultural? Yeah, I think I think it's definitely got a cultural thing of like you know, no no one wants to be a user. Yeah. True. Fair enough. I um, it's quite funny um, because of, because of that conversation that we we have that everyone's about to hear. But I also asked her to speak on a panel at Adobe Symposium called Design Thinking Solved. And then when we had our first chat uh, about it, she's like, "Oh yeah, so uh, don't want to like throw a curveball or anything at anyone, but I hate the idea of design thinking." And obviously, <laughs> you know, she unpacked it very very well. Yeah. And, and of course, we're all delighted because that's what you want on a panel. Exactly. Because you want someone that is going to disagree yes. or have yeah. an alternate perspective. And, and it's not that she doesn't disagree with design thinking, but it's just the way that we hold up design thinking as, totally. as like, it'll solve everything. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's actually just a tool that it, we can use. Exactly. exactly. I actually got to spend quite a bit of time with Chi at Adobe Live at the Adobe Symposium, mm. where she was the keynote speaker. And we had a great chat about HCD. Uh, the experience of buying cars, and she gave me a bunch of things to check out. One of them being Graham Hancock, which is kind of where we kicked off this episode. Yeah, right. That's where that came from. Um, just started getting into ancient Egyptians smoking weed, and I was—I admit, I was a little bit lost at, <laughs> at, at the beginning of that. But you know what? We got into a happy place. Yeah, it's. I, I would try to explain it, but it's probably best we just jump in. Yep. Enjoy. So last time we saw each other, you told me all about Graham Hancock and suggested that I join his fan club. Did I? Well, yeah, and I, I didn't know who he was. So I've now looked him up and I watched The War on Consciousness. Oh, did you? And I want to ask you more questions now. Okay. <laughs> so just for anyone who doesn't know, he talks about being stoned for 24 years. Well, that's part, yes, yeah. that is true. That's part of <laughs> right. that. And then he also talks a lot about ayahuasca. Yeah. So what were you getting out of it? Because did you do a tour with him, did you say? Yeah, so I, when he, he toured Australia uh, probably five or six years ago and I ran his social media campaigns for him. But 
Um, I also did a, a tour to Egypt with him uh, because the part about Graham that I love more than the um, Joe Rogan podcasts and the ayahuasca yeah. and the <laughs> which I have also perpetually stoned to. and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, the bit that I love about him is that he's an ancient civilization historian yeah. and his take on um, the forgotten history of the world is something that really resonates with me and so we went me and my husband we went on a trip to Egypt with um, with Graham and about 80 other people and we went I think it was two and a half weeks, three weeks. And we went to all of these ancient sites in Egypt and we got to go inside the Great Pyramid. And um, and I spent a lot of time contemplating what I think the pyramid really is. And, and I got to kind of bounce that off Graham, which was pretty cool. Oh, wow. And a couple of other things. But can, I mean, can, the, you, can you expand upon that? Yeah. So I think that what a lot of people don't realise is that the Great Pyramids us, and we better fact check this, but the Great Pyramids at Giza are some of the older pyramids and some of the older um, Egyptian artifacts um, and sites. Uh, and it's a bit like the craft was lost. Oh, right. Right, okay. like over time when you compare them to some of the those newfangled pyramids <laughs> that all the kids are building. Yeah, and Graham Graham has a theory that those pyramids, in particularly the Giza Plateau and the Sphinx, are a lot older than what people acknowledge them to be. So I think people in general, and Egyptology says um, the Great Pyramids, or G the Giza Plateau, let's say, and the Sphinx are like four and a half, five thousand years old, something like that. But he says that some of that site could be as old as 12,000 years old. And that there was this thing called the Young Adrius and that that was that those things were built before that, and then everything else came after that. So when you actually go there and you see some of the pyramids that are, I guess, younger than the ones at, at the Giza Plateau, you start to see something that maybe from the pictures and maybe from the books and maybe from the stories you don't see. History is the story of the winners, right? Yes. Right. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we don't get those books from the losers about what really happened from their point of view. No, and it was yeah. funny. There was this one day that we were – and we went to lots of different sites. Like it wasn't just pyramids. You know, we went to uh, the Valley of the Kings and, and that's a lot That's a lot more – that's a lot newer than the Giza Plateau. We're talking about a huge span of time. Mm. It's not like 200 years. It's like two and a half thousand years. Yeah. And the – you know – a lot of the, the the things that you see in, in ancient Egypt are um, Roman. Right. Oh, right. Because that, the Romans came and then they were the pharaohs closer to the time of modern history. So Jesus and blah, blah, blah. So we were at this site one day and um, Graham was talking about this this wall that was painted. We were actually – the site was a – not anybody, not, not anybody famous, not like a famous Instagram celebrity pharaoh, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just like some rich guy who'd built himself a tomb, but it was really well kept. So it was good because you could see how they, they looked after it. And he explained, and I should also mention that on our tour, we had a group of Egyptologists who were some of the best Egyptologists in the world. So it wasn't like we just had Graham telling us stories. Like we actually had Egyptologists who said, blah, 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 this is actually what happened. And they were really knowledgeable and Egyptian. And they told us, you know, 
what the hieroglyphs meant and then Graham would give his take. So this particular site, they told us this is what this means and blah, 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 blah. And, and basically these these paintings that were on the walls were about this guy and all the things he had. I've got 16 geese and I've got yeah. three carts and I've got four horses and I've got... And the goats. Don't even ask me about the goats. Yeah. I've not, got so many. Not dissimilar to people bragging on Instagram. Yeah. It's exactly that. <laughs> it's exactly that. So, you know, it's a funny when you go there and you you go through that experience with him and you hear this other side of history and what it could mean it really it makes you think differently about about the history of the world and then I guess I relate that directly back to design because I think that it's a great example of lost craft and for me personally I can't tell you exactly what the great pyramids are like I have some like I've got some magical power that allowed me <laughs> to know but trust and believe I sat and thought about it a lot and in when I was inside the great pyramid I went in the king the king's chamber I'm using inverted commas right now the king's chamber and I sat inside the in inverted commas the sarcophagus and I sat in it and I'm like sitting there and I'm like Mm-hmm. You know, and I like I studied architecture and industrial design, so I there's a, there's another part to this for me that is about like architecture, which I'm quite interested in. And if I had to say, and this is purely the Great Pyramids at Giza, if I had to say what I think that they are in nature, it's industrial. It is not. It is not temple-like in any way. It is industrial. It's more like the inside of a grain silo. Right, like without the the flowery lens of how important it is, like the actual the actual building of it and everything is actually like yeah, quite in, quite industrial. Kind of like being in a factory. Right. Pointy, I mean, a pointy factory. Very pointy factory mm. that has nothing of note inside. It's very smooth a lot of it. What drove you to take this trip? Like Graham. He, Graham specifically this person has, you know, this is someone that you've read about online. Or do you have a relationship with him in any other, like, professional relationship with him in another way? Well, like I said, I, I, I a couple of years before, I'd, I'd run a social media campaign while he was doing an Australian talking to it because he's right. an amazing speaker as well. Mm. So um, the guy can talk for eight hours straight and, and everybody's on the edge of their seat white-knuckling like, whoa, <laughs> this guy is amazing. He's an amazing speaker. And that was – that, and I, I'd known about his work and I'd been really interested in, in his work and his theories around um, kind of the forgotten history of the world and that's how I came to do the, the social media stuff and then – that's how I found out about this trip, this particular trip. And my husband and I were like, we have to go yeah. on this. This is a, and trust and believe cruising down the Nile in a spa bath with Graham Roughing is, it. is pretty sweet. <laughs> I think that's the interesting thing around Graham is just for me not knowing anything about him from you telling me and then kind of researching him, there is like there's two completely different sides to him. Like that kind of real academic, learned side, and then this, yeah, this experimental, kind of thought-provoking, but in, in a different way, kind of side. Well, I mean, he's pretty thought-provoking in the yeah, in, in the, the historical side too. I mean, he's pretty, he's pretty. I would, I'm not gonna, I don't want to use the word hated, but I mean, he's got some heat from the traditional archaeological world. 
right. police, the archaeologists. Yeah, the fun police. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, you know, he's copped a lot of heat. So it's, I think he, he's pretty controversial in his thinking. I mean, but even before that, there was these stories about the, the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, he's basically like Indiana Jones. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, that's, like, who doesn't want to hang out with Indiana Jones? He's legit that guy. And, and uh, yeah, and he's, he's super interesting. And, so yeah. let's talk about you from there. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned some of the courses. You also did film originally, is that right? Yeah, a long time ago, yeah. But you've done quite a few different courses, haven't you? Because you award school. Ad school, DMCS creative school. Yep. I've been to Hyper Island. I've been to General Assembly. And and that's just, is that you just trying to keep ahead of the curve? I don't know if it's about keeping ahead of a cu- the curve. The only curve there is for me to keep ahead of is my own. I'm just trying to expand on me, like who, who I am, I think. Um, I'm trying to expand who I am or the way that I think about the world really that's i that's i think that's what i'm i'm doing um you know and and actually i mean i i just like learning um i i'm always and it's funny it's kind of my safe place as well because when i'm feeling a little bit a bit you know a bit lacking confidence i think i know i'll return to school (laughs) i'll get smarter (laughs) i can make people i'll upgrade i'll upgrade my brain (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so you know, I actually at the moment I'm actually thinking about it. So I, I, like, and I, I have done a like I've, I've sort of started things and then stopped them because they weren't quite right. And um, yeah, and at the moment I'm I'm actually going to an open day at afters tomorrow. Oh wow, okay. Hmm. Because I really feel like I would like to really return to 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 screen actually. And um, is that for on stage or is that back of stage? Like what part of that no, film? Film, yeah. yeah okay. So full circle. Yeah. I mean, I still use um, film and motion and video as a huge part of my my practice. I'm always making videos and I encourage lots of people to, to – I encourage everybody to, to make videos because I think it's such a simple uh, medium. And now you've everybody's got a camera on their phone. So it's so easy to communicate something very quickly with – with video um but i'd also like to um to challenge my own practice and um take my craft level with film much further um so that that's something that i'm thinking about at the moment a lot when when you're talking about creating videos and using motion to communicate ideas what what are we talking about here are we talking about as part of a presentation as part of research methodology all of the above so right. i i use i use video in the way that other people might use making a report or writing or even visual design like you know illustration so i use video in that way to explain my work um, which might be research or it might be it could be making a presentation or um, a lot of the time I use video to make experience prototypes. So right. um, if I'm trying to articulate a experience that is not necessarily digital or physical, it's the experience that someone goes through of something, I'll use, a, I'll use video to articulate 
that experience. It's much easier to use video to do that than it is to try to do it on paper or... Yeah, because otherwise you're doing a storyboard and mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. if you can... And, exper- I, and I guess that's where most people fall down and those skills, those video skills aren't quite there. So they do have to rely on other... Well, it's funny because I think that people think that everybody has to be James Cameron. <laughs> Yeah. to tell a story with film, and that's simply not true. I mean, you only have to watch TikTok for five minutes and suddenly you're, like, <laughs> laughing your ass off and you've realised that there's, you know, consummate storytellers who use their phone every day, all day. So, I, I mean, I think that everybody can use the tools that they've got at their, at their disposal to tell really great stories. But if you're going for you know, the quality of a black magic and, you know, whatever. You, you, Like, sure, that's probably out of reach for most people. But if you're willing to forgo a bit of a bit of quality... I mean, you know, um, one of my favourite people... And in fact, one of my favourite videos is um, Do What You Can't by Casey Neistat. He's a YouTuber who... You know, some, pe- some people love him, some people hate him. I personally find him really inspiring you know basically do what you can't is a video that he made about being told that he couldn't do something he wanted to be a filmmaker and his dad told him you can't you don't have any money and then people told him you can't because you didn't go to film school and then people told him he couldn't be on tv because he wasn't pretty enough and suddenly he had a hbo series and and now he's like you know one gq man of the year and you know he he's done all this stuff and ultimately he's still running around with video cameras like jumping off buildings and doing all kinds of crazy shit and he's is there a better motivator than telling someone that they can't do something (laughs) precisely yeah excellent motivator right don't do it like that all right i will yeah Yeah, for sure are you not going to ask me who my favorite director is i assumed it was james cameron just yeah the reference was absolutely not (laughs) I mean, I do like, I, I don't mind James Cameron, but no, my, my favourite director is Alejandro Jodorowsky. He's a Chilean filmmaker. Um, probably, he hasn't made that many films. Probably his, his, his most famous is The Holy Mountain, which you might have seen late at night on SBS um, back in the day when they used to play somewhat obscure films late at night. That particular film, I think it was made in 1967 or 1968 and it was bankrolled by the Beatles. Oh, right. Um, so I highly recommend that you watch it. It'll <laughs> blow your mind. Do I need to be high for 24 years? Oh, you'll, all, to, you'll be high just by watching to it. Enjoy it. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about like shifting consciousness without the use of any type of um, stimulants or substances. Right. So that's a whole other subject that we can come back to in a minute. But and that's why that's partly why I'm so interested in in the human experience. The other thing that that Jodorowsky. So there's two things that you need to look up if you want to know about Jodorowsky. So the first one is um, uh, the greatest film never made. So there's a documentary. Well, I, have you heard of the film Dune? Uh, Dune, Dune, as in yeah. D U N E. Yes. Yes. Dune. That was directed by David Lynch. Yeah. Well, that was actually meant to be directed by Jodorowsky. Oh, right. Now, Jodorowsky, um, and you can you can hear the whole storytelling of that that situation in a f- in a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune 
I would highly recommend that you you look it up and watch it. So um, they're they're just remaking Dune, aren't they? They made well, so that's it's a t- TV series. Is it? Mm. Oh, I must I must have a look. I wonder if it's if because basically, Jodorowsky was given a budget to make Dune before Lynch was given. He was given it at the last minute and kind of ruined it. I am a Lynch fan, but. Um, that's another story. I, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people, I I thought he ruined it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people were like, no, it's a classic. But I think compared to the books. It is a classic, but for all the wrong reasons. Mm. So Jodorowsky planned Dune and, um, and he actually put it down in this book. He made a book about what it was going to be. And to be honest, I don't think that they could have made that film in the late 70s when they were making Dune. And he blew the budget anyway and then they were like, you're not doing that anymore. We're going to give it to that wacko over there. Quickly, David Lynch, come and make this film. Um, But the thing about Jodorowsky was that he was a master orchestrator of talent and he discovered H.R. Geiger. He discovered basically all of the people who went on to make Star Wars in their special effects group. Um, He... Well, and he was going to, you know, he, he he wanted to work with Salvador Dali. and I mean, he he's an amazing um, orchestrator of people and wonderful things. And I think that that's a, um, an amazing skill to have. But if you really want to understand Jodorowsky, go to YouTube and search for Jodorowsky and Kanye West and the story <laughs> of when Kanye summoned... Jodorowsky to meet his entourage in Cannes and that is a brilliant example of of Jodorowsky at his best and you know I have this like six degrees of separation with him and I wish that it was closer but um, my main tattoo artist Deno who's from Madrid um, he he's quite into magic and um, Jodorowsky is also quite into magic and tarot and and um, and they've actually met several times and and so I wish that my tattoo artist would take me to meet him but I don't think it's going to happen he's old now he's like Jodorowsky's in his in his late 80s so I love the fact that you said your main tattoo artist because you've you've got other ones that aren't your main tattoo artist. but you do have a lot of tattoos I do have a lot of tattoos do you know do you know how many no lost count no I don't know how many I don't really count them as as separate ones anymore they're just a lot, probably about, I would say about 75% of my body is covered now. There's a lot of empty. Like if you, if, if, if you were to see me, if you had the terrible privilege of seeing me naked, um, you would note, note that there's a lot of white space. Right. Still to fill. <laughs> yes. Lots to fill. <laughs> and as I get older, uh, I get less inclined to do it because it, it, I don't know if it gets more painful, but I can tell you this. Um, I re- So don't, get a tattoo and think that if you don't like it, you can just get it removed with laser because laser is by far and away the most painful experience you will ever have in your entire life. Oh, really? Okay. Much worse than getting the tattoo in the first place. So talking about tripping balls, I got (laughs) my chest lasered and afterwards I was speaking in tongues. Like I was like literally for for an hour afterwards, I was... Incoherent. Like, Do they give you something for the pain, or you just sit down and? The, no, they give you nothing. <laughs> like they, they, they. You come in, they say, "Give me your money and sit down and don't move." That's basically what. Well, you know, it wasn't that bad, but right. but it was pretty bad. I was like, I was crying, and I'm pretty tough. Like I can take a lot of pain. I was crying. I came out. I was 
in the car with my husband and I was one minute laughing hysterically, the next minute I was crying <laughs> for at least an hour afterwards. It was insane. Wow. Um, so do not, do not, it, that is no joke getting laser. Have you had many tattoos laser removed? No, that's not very the, many. The only one. Just the only one. Yeah. yeah. And I'm only, I mean, it's not that I didn't like it. It's that I just wanted something else. Right. Oh, so you went back over the top of it. I haven't Off yet. Off to Madrid. Well, actually, interestingly enough, so I'm actually going to get it redone. Hopefully, hopefully Ted will will hear this. Um, all, a lot of my my tattoos are by Spanish artists now, and my other tattooer Ted A, who is based in London, I'm going to get him to do it when I go back next year. But it's pretty easy. You can get them covered up pretty easily. Mm. Yeah. What are you going to just get a big James Cameron? Um, <laughs> <laughs> just just the Titanic. Just the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no. I'm go- I'm gonna get a. I'm get. What are they called? Co- what are they called from his other film? Um, the blue, the blue people. The Avatar. The Avatar. Av- I'm gonna get an Avatar. 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 No, yeah. I'm not. There's gonna Avatar, get Avatar two coming out, so it'll be perfect timing. So talking about all the learning you've done, you've also been teaching a bit, haven't you? Yes. Is that something that really interests you? Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, yes, I do. I mean, I I enjoy helping people. I enjoy I enjoy helping people to achieve whatever they want to achieve, but I flip flop because sometimes I wonder if I don't know I don't know if I really I don't know if I really am qualified to teach anything. <laughs> Why would anyone want to learn from? Me? Do you hold, do you hold the same idea with people that teach you as well? Do you think, oh, maybe they're not qualified to be teaching me? No, it's only a self reflection yeah. thing, really. Yeah. So what about designing for impact? That's one of the classes you taught at Academy XI. Oh, that's not a class. That's a workshop. Okay. And that's, um, that's, that's, a, that's a speculative design workshop. And that's a bit different. And I suppose that in a way that's teaching too. But yeah, I mean, mostly I, it's not, I don't know if I'd really look at it as teaching. Mostly I like to try to, I like to, try to wake people up. Well, that's teaching though, isn't it? Because if if you hadn't been there, they would still be asleep. Maybe, um, I, you know, and it's oftentimes like, you know, I think that people have. I think everybody has the capacity to to do much more than they think that they're capable of. And this is funny. This is this is an interesting. There's an interesting relationship between that and Graham. So this is you know this is part of what he's what he's talking about because he's talking about. Um, in in the war on consciousness, he's talking about whether or not we have agency over our own consciousness and whether or not um, we should be allowed to take, you know, substances to enhance that. Or and and I think I think that it's inter- it's interesting to to play in the space of of waking people's um, agency to their own consciousness without necessarily requiring some type of enhancement to do so so being able to wake up your own mind um, and I think it's possible I've seen I've seen it happen you know I mean and I, I use mum all the time as an example so she must hate it she must hate it um, <laughs> but you know a few, just a few years ago I remember having a conversation with her we were, I was talking about you know the circular economy and that you know you know you really need to try to recycle or to have a compost bin and and you know I think you need less stuff because you know, if we just have, like, if we have stuff, it just takes up too much time in your life. And, oh, no, no, I don't want to hear it. 
da 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 da. So this was a couple of years ago. Next minute, she ends up, you know, doing a service design course, and now she's like, the you know, the tree doesn't grow far from the apple, obviously, because <laughs> like, she's all like, now, oh, you know, we need to be inclusive. Like she's about to talk at Academy XI on a paddle about being about inclusive design, and I'm like, you know, well how the worm turns because, <laughs> because you know it so I, well, I guess what i'm getting at here is that you can wake people to thinking differently about the things that they do in the world and, and interestingly enough that's a good segue into the story that i wanted to tell you about 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 this circular economy and of what what that kind of means and in fact i'll just i'll just read it because that's just easiest because this is too hard for me to remember I do, I do have a, like, if you want to know what my biggest fear is that I'll get early onset Alzheimer's or something like that and lose, lose my, I was like, boy, my mind is like Swiss cheese. Oh man, I worry about that. And when, when you have that thing in your head and then it's gone and I felt like when I was younger, I could kind of work out how to get to where I was, but now it's like all the doors are locked. I can't remember if I have a bad memory or not. (laughs) What'd you say? <laughs> no, my wife is terrified of it because we'll have conversations, and she's like, "We we we've spoken about this." Yeah, and I'm like, "Yeah, we probably did." <laughs> yep. My my wife has a history of Alzheimer's in her family, so oh, I geez. can play j- tricks with her and say, "I oh, know we def- definitely talked about this a few times." No, we never talked about. It. <laughs> oh, right. So there was a story that came out on Dazine.com yesterday. This is the description. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation is launching an initiative called the Circular Design Program with the intent of persuading millions of designers to stop creating products that end up in landfill. The foundation has calculated that by 2025, there will be 160 million designers and creative decision makers in the world, representing 5% of the global workforce of 3.4 billion people. And this is really important. They will design everything around us by 2025 from the clothes we wear to the buildings we live and work in to the systems that deliver food and mobility think about that how important that is right how many designers there are in the world i mean i i I had heard that it was a couple of years ago that in china there was over a million people studying design at university. This would have been two or three years ago, so it's probably increased since then. And those people are probably hitting the workforce now. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that that everything around us in just a few years will be consciously, well, not consciously, but it will be in, designed with intent. It's already happening. Um, and I think this is something that we, we, we really need to, to be more aware of. You know, and, and this is the thing about helping people to be more awake yeah. because it's not enough to, to design thing, make things anymore. You know, that's, that's all and very good, but we need to be thinking about the impact of those things that we are making. And that, you know, if we're talking about landfill of, you know, physical products and physical things, as someone who, you know, and I, and I certainly don't protest to only work in digital, but digital is a big part of a lot of what I do. If we have, you know, real landfill, then we also have digital landfill. Right. And then beyond those two things, there's something else that 
that scares the hell out of me, which is experiential landfill. So if you think about that, you know, all of the things that are made in the world have inexperience attached to them, whether we like it or not. And those things, they take from us. They take our money, they take our time, they take our energy, they take our attention. From the very short time that we get to have here on this planet. And I think these are things that as designers we need to start thinking about. And that that statement is so powerful because designers as a whole are an enormous group of people. And we as the makers have a distinct power. We don't have to do what we're told we can change things from the inside out if we want to. And I guess that's, you know, that is the motivation when it comes to, again, I I don't know if I'm teaching anybody anything by saying it, but I hope that um, by provoking with these types of, Mm. of, of thoughts and thinking that it will make designers in the future think more deeply about what they do and and how they do it and what the impact of what they make is. At the Adobe Symposium, you you talked about this idea of like ask why before you say yes, which I really, really liked. And I'm going to quote you. You said, is the juice worth the squeeze? Which I thought really got me thinking about like that's because we we do have to start asking more questions about why why we're going to do something and and whether uh, thinking about the risk that could be involved if we do do something. Um, which I think is really interesting. I think, again, I'm going to go into education, but like education universities need to be teaching this. I think that self-awareness should is, is highly underrated. We should be more self-aware. I mean, I think that there's um, been uh, an awakening over the past few years, you know, with, with... Well, it's funny because, you know, for me, all this kind of goes back a long way. So when I was at at high school, I was in, I think I was in year eight at high school and um, we had this geography assignment and we had to write an essay on, I don't know, something. And I wrote this assignment on how much your burger really costs. So this was like early nineties. I know, I know you don't believe me, <laughs> um, early nineties. Um, and, uh, and, and it, yeah, like thinking about the, the cost of food in that in this particular way was just not something people really did but what i was writing about was to mass produce burgers you have to clear forests and and although that's pretty common now um, at that time that wasn't particularly common i mean you know back i don't i don't even think the term global warming was even really Mm. part of the vernacular then so you know and, and i think that people are becoming more and more aware that you know your fast fashion costs a lot more than the nineteen dollars that you pay on ASOS for a T-shirt, or, um, or you know, if you buy something on Amazon, like you know, the reality is that that something has to give if you want cheap delivery of a product. That there's workers in the in the Amazon factory that you know are packing boxes that probably don't get paid very much. So we ha- I, and I think this is this is something that we're going to have to. Um, to 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 come to terms with um you know which do we want more our our uber eats delivery 
or you know can we can we forgo that um, to yeah. to make sure that we we um, sustain ourselves? So I saw a deliveroo delivery person delivering a croissant the other day. One croissant. One croissant. Was that when you opened the door and accepted your croissant? <laughs> no, I, I kind of I questioned him, and he was laughing about it, saying, "Isn't that ridiculous?" And, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of scary, and I, I, I guess this is what worries me so much because I'm I'm completely on board with what you're saying, and I, I'm a big believer myself of that we have to change and we have to make better choices about from everything from the clothes we wear to um, what we eat. But for every one of us there seems to be like 50 other people who just don't give a shit. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, and this is why I have a love-hate relationship with design. Um, Because on the one hand, you know, I'm all about thinking about people and humanity and... And on the other hand, I'm like, I hate people. <laughs> people suck. Get rid of them. Um, so it it is a real tension. But at the same time, I, I figure if, let's say that I could get 10 people around me in my lifetime to change the way that they think about the way that they do things. And God knows if I can change my mum's mind, then I then it's possible. Um and this goes then, back to the power of design, as you said before. It's like it, that's kind of the power's in our hands to try and help wake people up. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like this, you know. I mean, um, by being here and talking to you guys, you know, this message gets passed on, and maybe a few people out there are going to hear this and go, "Wow, that really resonated with me." I'm going to talk about that too. Um, you know, maybe they'll go and you know be part of the the circular economy project or they, they, you know, they'll get involved somehow or maybe they'll go and talk to someone else on a podcast or maybe they'll go and do a, a different workshop. And um, one asshole is going to order a croissant on Uber <laughs> yeah. just to see if they can do it. Yeah. Jerk. <laughs> Enjoy your croissant. Um, yeah, I mean, when you were talking about the big number of there being uh, – 100,000 people or so many people that are being trained as designers going in. Like that sounds like a huge 160 net. million. 160 million. <laughs> I was off by a couple of degrees of magnitude. Um, I mean, that sounds like a net positive for me, for me, like hearing that, hearing that there are people out there thinking and, and being educated as designers as their base. Because we, we're not all one thing, right? Like we're all multiple things. You know, you learn the base of design and you can apply that to lots of different things as you continue your journey. That sounds like really positive to me because that's X amount of people with all those zeros who are not going into another field that must that may be more rigid and more traditional. So um, that makes me feel really positive about the future, that people that people will be thinking and considering designing more broadly and exchanging ideas with each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, mm. and, and I mean, I, I think that's really positive. I think it's, I think that, I think the thing for me is for, that's important is that designers begin to realize more clearly just how much power they actually have. I think that we underestimate the power. And I think that people in general underestimate the power of design. Mm. Because, you know, like I said, like, imagine that everything 
by 2025 is going to be something that one of us touched. Right. Ooh, that's power. Right. But, but you know, if you ask non-designers, I don't know, I feel like they need to name like the, the, the non the non-wizards in Harry like Potter. Muggles. Like, yeah, muggles, that's exactly like muggles, what I was thinking. Muggles, um, non-designers, they, they, you know, if some, ugh, okay, so, so like I go, I'll go to a wedding and I'll, someone else, and it, if someone says to me, so love, what, what do you do? And I'll be like, um, can you please not ask that question? Oh, I need a drink. Uh, um, I'll, I'll say, oh, well, I'm a designer. And generally the response is, Oh, are you a fashion designer? Right. Or are you a are you a tattooer? That's usually what I get. Are you a fashion? Oh, you must be a hairdresser. No, I'm definitely not those things. So then I have to try to explain what it is that I do, which can be quite difficult because I want to tell them what I really do. But but most people, what they think of when they think of design, oftentimes is, oh, you make things pretty. You know, right. You you make visual things. Well, you make things to sell. You design things to be pretty to to ship like advertising i get that a lot i i just get a lot of oh you make shit pretty that's 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 the that's the that's usually where people stop and start or oh oh you make ads okay which i don't um not anymore so i think there's a lot of misconception around what design is um and what design means for this world and when we're talking about you know 160 million potential designers in the world basically creeping around making everything that you touch and buy and <laughs> we 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 are in we're basically like you know if you've seen Fight Club yes we don't. We we're don't not allowed talk to about, talk about. We're it. not allowed to talk about that. But um, I like the idea of designers creeping, like on all fours, <laughs> just with their app, with their Apple earpods in, <laughs> like, <laughs> or yeah. just sneaky, like sneaking around the corner, like you know, or looking up from inside your, you know, your your bag that you've bought. Like, Having this, little co-design workshops in the corner in the dark. Yeah, basically. This, this could be designed better. Right. We'll we'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sneak, sneaking around at night, like fixing things. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's like the shoemaker's elves. Yeah, so I, I think that what's, what is really important is for designers themselves. And I know that, you know, you hear like, oh, I want to change the world. I want to make the world a better place. And that's great. But there's more to it than that because design is big, big business. And I think that designers need to take stock of um, how important that is i mean like you know let's just look at the the big one like let's just take apple i mean they have basically you know made themselves what they are off the back of design mm. and and you know and yes we're like oh it's so beautiful and no oh, they make you know it smells so nice um but i still think that designers in general don't sort of treat themselves that way it's it's, it's definitely what i see i see designers um you know, still think they're not good enough that they don't they don't have that seat at the table. They don't have that that they're not able to be part of that bigger conversation. That they still take briefs. That they no, we make the briefs. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you suppose that is? I mean, I'm I'm thinking earlier in the podcast, you almost have a bit of an imposter syndrome when it comes to teaching, and we're almost talking about that when it, <laughs> that when it comes to design. Like, I almost see like a parallel between the two. Sure, I definitely. I mean, I'll be the first to admit that. I like I I'm my own worst critic for sure. Like nobody could ever beat me at being hard on myself. It's true. <laughs> like it's very hard. I've, ooh, it's 
At least you know that you're the best at that. I'm I'm (laughs) real, real good at being hard on myself. Yeah, like it's 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 really hard, and I I don't even know if it's about it's not even about perfection. It's just it's it's wanting to it's wanting to know that what you've done is is good enough, or that it's it's better than good enough. Um, but I think that's part of it. I think that like I think there's part of that that comes back to not really understanding how to critique your own work, or you know, um, um, yeah. I I think that that's probably something that as a young designer you don't really get it does well certainly for me it wasn't it wasn't explained as well as I think it could have been and now I spend a lot of time um, putting in place um, um, uh, frameworks um, to to um, to help make critique easier right and make it not personal so so a hot tip for me is um, you know Design is, design isn't for you. It's for someone else. Um, you can't take critique personally, and the way that I try to do that is I critique the work and not myself. So um, in general, I'll have a set of critique questions, and I'll be asking the design, "Do you do this design? Are you going to do this? Are you going to answer this? Are you going to do the, the things that we intended you to do?" Um, and if the answer is no then we can make changes. If the answer is yes, it does that thing, mm. then So no you try to take the continue. human part of it. I of try it. to take I try to take the person out yeah. of the critique yeah. for sure. And and it's something that I try to encourage um, my teams and designers that I encounter to do to 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 put their heart and soul into the work but take their heart and soul out of the critique. Oh, I like that. Mm. That's can I just bring up one thing though? Because we've been talking about Ellen MacArthur Foundation Circular and how great it is that these billions of designers are coming up. But are we assuming that all of those designers are left leaning? Huh. Sure. I mean, with that, with that number, there's probably going to be quite a few right wing designers. Not just right wing, but, you know, designers, I suppose designers have different types of motivations for why they do what they do. I mean, you know, if you want if you want proof of that, I would suggest watching a documentary called Kaching, an Australian documentary about design in the gaming industry. Well, not, well, gaming as in um, uh, poker machines um, and gambling. Uh, I think it's a very, it's a very, very interesting documentary um, in that space, so yeah. Look, I think um, I think you're right. Different people have different motivations, but you know that particular initiative is about making that type of thinking the norm, not the exception. Mm. Um, and you know, and there, there's lots of things about design that I think are commonalities for you know for most designers in any way. In any case, um, so you know. At the very least, being mindful of, more mindful of what we make should become a, a common part of yeah. of what we do. I think that's a great way to end the podcast. Oh, it's so quick. Super quick one, right? I talk a lot. 
It's, no, it's, it's good. super weird when the guest doesn't <laughs> yeah. talk for 45 minutes. <laughs> Just ask, asking questions and then sitting there for five minutes at a time. Um, that never happens. <laughs> Everyone loves to talk about themselves. That's true. Can... Everyone's favorite subject, right? Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Where, where do you live online? Like, where is the best place to point people towards if they want to find, find out more about, about you or follow you online? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the place. LinkedIn is the only place. Okay. I don't really use other social media anymore. Okay. You used to do a lot of writing on LinkedIn and Medium before that. You're not doing that so much anymore? I'm just too busy. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> Look, the, the, last, the last little while, I just, I just moved back from New York and I, like, literally my furniture just got delivered today, which not even to my house, to Melbourne. <laughs> So I have to still have to get it moved to Sydney. So, you know, um, I'm still waiting to get my dog back from New York. It's like oh, wow. it, there's so many life happens. And, yeah. and uh, I would like to I would like to be do, able to do more of that. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, people hold themselves to, you know, doing this thing and repeating it all the time. And nah, I'm just going to go where the, the wind takes me. <laughs> <laughs> find her on the wind <laughs> uh, Matt where can people find you uh, Matt underscore leech on Instagram cool I'm at pretty much everything at Flynn Tracy and you can find this episode and more at AUSdesignradio.com and you can follow the show on Twitter Instagram SoundCloud at AUSdesignradio thank you so much for coming on the show thank you thank you for having me